Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of the Adventure Jogger podcast brought to you by Chris Casey, Trail Mayor Hates Honeysuckle, <laughs> John W. Aberzewski III, Jennifer Ridgely, Jessica Seamow, and all of our Patreon supporters. And of course, why would I even do this if it wasn't for you, you the listener? <laughs> The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. John Goldfield, how are you, man? Fantastic. I don't record these things in order. So, yeah, so this, so people, this will not make sense. If you, if you think I record these episodes in order, I don't. So last night I, I just, I scheduled them based on something that's urgent or something that's not. And so I, I move things around. So last night, as of the recording of this podcast, I was talking to Jamil Corey and, um, I always write down like five Patreons and I always like start the podcast with this episode brought to you by, and, right. and it sure as crap, name number two on that list was John Goldfield. And I'm like, how yes. crazy is that? I'm talking to John tomorrow night. Here I am, you know, because I just write the list down. And I don't even plan that stuff out. So, I, yes, I intentionally brought you Jamil. That was that was the whole plan. <laughs> so I, I, I want people to know John is not on the podcast just because he is a Patreon supporter. I do appreciate all of our Patreon supporters, but that is not why John is here. John, you are someone that uh, a lot of people said, like, you have got to talk to to John Goldfield. And so I, I reached out and was able to make this happen. So I appreciate you taking the evening with me. Sure, man. So where's home for you? Where did where did John Goldfield grow up? I uh, grew up in Northern California, actually. Uh, most of my childhood in a very small town called Point Reyes mm-hmm. uh, out on the coast, north of San Francisco. Beautiful area. Okay. So growing up outside of San Francisco. Yeah. That's an interesting part of the world. Were you a, were you a runner, John, as a kid? You know, uh, there was a there was a brief uh, moment in my high school years uh, that I did some running, and then maybe uh, you know eighth grade or so, I ran some ten k's. Uh, ironically, I did some I did some trail running, and um, and I think I hated it. <laughs> it was too steep and dirt got in my shoes and all this stuff but but my my whole thing was to be able to run the beta breakers race because i wanted to see naked people and um and there there are naked people in that race at least there used to be back in the we're, we're talking the early 80s here <laughs> the beta breaker was this classic like crazy san francisco race where people would dress up in costumes and they would have centipedes you know of, of teams of runners and and it was really in that that beginning of the 80s running boom you know where 
everybody was all excited about Jim Fix and all that stuff. So here you are. You are middle school slash high school. Yeah. And you want to try running and trail running in the hopes that you could do this beta breakers race and see some naked people. See all the crazy naked people. And and I got to be honest with you, the, the one naked or two naked people that we saw were not anything to be too excited about. <laughs> as we all know, nobody wants to see a naked runner as it turns out. That, that, is the God, that is the God honest truth. And that is the reason why that race has not caught on. And there's not right. a naked running boom across the United States. Because really, when you think about it, even if you're a person of what society would label as stunning, handsome you know like like let's just just pull jason momoa for the for the ladies for an example so even if jason momoa is running with nothing on there's like flopping and that (laughs) there's parts that aren't meant to do that (laughs) right exactly even if i'm trying to think of who like the the hot woman of of the of the time is we'll just say taylor swift even sure. in the, that case, there's just the, 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 like the yeah. two things are not meant to go together. There's nothing sexy about naked running at all. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which is probably why I didn't keep running. <laughs> it's so funny. My wife is a middle school teacher, and that is the most middle school boy thing ever. Like, yeah. I want to yeah. get into this. <laughs> the chances of seeing <laughs> naked people at this yeah. race. Oh. So yeah, didn't, didn't run really again until about, I don't know, a uh, little less than 10 years ago. What kind of brought you back? Well, first of all, there's a lot of moving because you are no longer yeah, North yeah, Central. I, You're I, Raleigh, I North Carolina. there and went to college in Southern California and then came back to the Bay Area for a while and then ended up moving out to Raleigh, North Carolina in 2000. Um uh, basically looking to get into PA school, physician assistant school mm-hmm. and working as a paramedic at the time. Okay. And that's got to be a huge culture shift to go from north of San Francisco. And Raleigh's a great town. Raleigh is is a yeah. beautiful, you know, wonderful city. But even that is you're getting some culture shock moving from San Francisco to anywhere. And then you right. go to San Francisco to Raleigh. Right, right. Yeah, some of the because I was a paramedic, I would I would travel to some of the more rural areas around, you know, the outskirts of Raleigh, too. And uh, so there was there was a lot of that. But I will say that they all accepted me because, as they would say, at least you're not a Yankee. (laughs) (laughs) So because I was from California, they just didn't know how to like classify me. And they just said, well, you're probably all right. Because California wasn't a part of the union during the Civil War that they're like, yeah, John's good. He's from Northern California. They didn't like the New Yorkers and the the New Jerseyans (laughs) and Connecticut people coming down. And because that's the thing. Raleigh is this has had this huge influx over the past 20, 25 years of people from everywhere else because it's so great to live here, really. We have that thing, too, where I live, which I'm just north of Nashville in a town called Clarksville. And there are Mm -hmm. so many people that move here because of the military. I mean, there's a lot of military moving, but we've got a lot of big industry here, like Google's here and, you know, uh, they're building some kind of fancy electric car factory here. And so, yeah, we have so many people coming from, you know, the, the West Coast to Clarksville, we have way more electric cars in this community than we should, than any southern town of 170,000 people should have. We have way more electric cars because of the yeah. influx of people moving here. Yeah. So you're in good company. Right. What brought so, yeah. you back 
John. So you, you you know, did you find out was there a race in Raleigh where maybe there were some naked people that kind of piqued your interest again, or, or what brought you back? Yeah, thankfully, not a lot of naked runners in Raleigh. I'm I'm glad to say. No, it's uh, my my story is is a common one uh, for many men of uh, mid middle age. Uh, was uh, struggling a little bit with my weight and had a dog that needed some exercise and had a marriage that wasn't working great and a job I didn't really love and um, started just getting out there to do something and um, started running and it sucked just like I did when I was a kid and and all that stuff and um, and then you know went down the slippery slope of of reading Born to Run and uh, watching a couple of YouTube videos and uh, Basically, I was out on a run one day and and didn't want to come back and and did ten miles and thought, well, shit, if I can do ten miles, I can do a half marathon. So I decided to do a half, and so I did a road marathon after that, and that sucked. That was awful. <laughs> what, was, said, what was so really bad? Me. What was so bad about the road marathon, John? It's the usual, you know. It just uh, I hit the wall at like sixteen to twenty miles, and everything hurt, and and it was miserable. And I was like, why am I doing this? So I said, well. Um, I will, I'll train better and I'll do it. I'll do it next year. This was the city of Oaks, uh, marathon, which yeah. is a great marathon here in Raleigh. Um, and I did it the next year and I did worse. Uh, and it was even more miserable. And I was like, that's it. Just like I always said, I should never be running these distances is a terrible idea for me. I don't know why I thought I should be doing this. And that was in 2017. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know, running just stupid long distances and loving every minute of it. And a lot of that's just because I kind of discovered the trail. How did you discover the trail? Because, you know, some people, you you found the book. Did you find the book Born to Run before you ran the marathon or was that after? That was after. Yeah, that was after. I started, I started reading, you know, like Runner's World magazine. And then there was this other stupid, weird magazine called Trail Runner. And then an even weirder one called Ultra Running. And I was like, <laughs> what are these people? What is wrong with these people? There's no, there's no article in here that talks to me, except that every article was talking to me. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like, what I didn't know is that these were, these were my people. This was my tribe. And, and I was, I was getting a glimpse of this like amazing sort of culture and attitude and it had nothing to do with the actual distances that people were running. It was all about this like great vibe really. And, um, and so I started running on trails and I, I was dating a girl at the time and I was like, yeah, I'm going to, I'll try to run an ultra someday. And she's like, you should do it. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. And I signed up for the mountain to see 50 K, which is right here in Raleigh up at falls Lake. And, uh, I ran in Umstead because I write, I live right near here so I could run around Umstead. And then I found out there was a big race in Umstead that people do and they run, you know, crazy number of miles, a hundred miles. No way. That's not possible. So I go and check it out and I volunteer for a, maybe like a 6 PM to 9 PM shift or something like that at, at one of the aid stations. Yeah. And I stay all night long because I'm entranced. I'm like just amazed at what's going on. How can you not be? It's it's one of yeah. those things where and I've, I've I've had that similar story with other people I've interviewed of I'm just going to it's like it's like the gateway drug in a way where people are like, yeah. ah, I'm just going to try this aid station, see what it's like. And you get so wrapped up in the success of other people. It's it's like you can't leave. You're like, oh, I can stay for a little bit longer. This is just I got to see if we get some more people through. Right. And it's these people that are that are that are so normal. You know, they're not. They're not a, any kind of stereotypical anything. 
and 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 you start to think to yourself well god you know maybe i could do something like this you know and just it completely opens up the door it's crazy so was it that moment at umstead where you're like okay i'm i'm i've run a 50k i'm going to run i'm gonna tackle 100 miles yeah well i think i think i didn't i probably thought about it that first year for sure but i i, I tried to be reasonable i i was not one of these crazy people who you know we always laugh about i, I listen to podcasts and they say i ran a 10k and i figured i might as well do 100 miles after that <laughs> no not me i was at least i said i should do a 50 miler so I said, well, I'm just going to pick a, a 50 miler that's, you know, within driving distance that would seem like a reasonable thing to do. And there was one that was called the Mountain Masochist. And I thought, oh, that'll be cool. It sounds nice. <laughs> so I sign up and then everybody who knows anything about stuff keeps telling me, oh, you understand that's a David Horton race. Like, that's legit. <laughs> like, listen, you know, there's other 50 milers you could have done, but the word masochist in the title yeah. should have tipped you off to the fact that maybe this is not the great first 50 miler for you. Well, that's that's kind of ended up being a, a common theme for me is that uh, there's there's some part of when some, you know, we all joke about this, too, that when somebody says, hey, I have this really terrible idea and this looks like it will be horrifically hard. And I say, Wow, bad idea. When should I sign up? <laughs> you know? So something that says mountain masochist sounded funny to me. And it, you know, it had it had write-ups that talked about the beautiful views and all this stuff. And I thought that's great. And but it, it was a tight cutoff. I finished that race with I think 10 minutes to cut off. Wow. You had 10 minutes to spare on the cutoff of that race? Yep. And in the last aid station where I could have been pulled, I was running with this other woman and we had to run through the aid station and just wave to our crew as we ran through at a reasonable clip so that we wouldn't get pulled because we had literally like 20 seconds to spare or something. Wow. We actually made up 10 minutes in the last section, but uh, but almost got pulled at this like penultimate aid station. Wow. That yeah. had to have been a heck of an experience rolling in with 150K under your belt and doing Mountain yeah. Masochist. Yeah. <laughs> waving to your crew like hey thanks for sitting here for three hours waiting for me but if i don't right. run right past you i'm gonna get pulled from the course yeah yeah just ran right on through but that but that was uh that was quite an experience that race and uh i would i would definitely do it again but so far i haven't gotten back gone back and done you know more than one or two races twice uh, just because there's so many great races to do that's the truth. That is the stone cold truth. So did that 50 miler with 10 minutes to spare give you the self-confidence to tackle twice the distance? Yeah, that's the crazy thing. That's that's where the that's probably where the, the slightly off chemistry in the brain starts to become very apparent is that I start saying things like, well, let's do something harder and let's do something harder after that until I keep just doing harder and harder races. But yeah, I mean, I, I felt like I felt after I did the 50 miler and and I and I I was proud of myself for getting through it and actually speeding up at the end to be able to make the cutoffs. Yeah. So I thought, okay. And at that point I had realized, oh, this is a kind of a legit tight cutoff race. So maybe if I ran some other races that were a little more generous, I can get away with that. And and you know, picking Umstead 100 as my first 100 was was a smart move you know that's a great first hundred it's got incredible support it's a looped course you know eight loops and it's got 
you know, not a lot of elevation. It's only 8,000 feet of gain over the whole thing. So, um, and it's in my backyard, basically. I mean, I run from my house just at Umstead, you know, an hour ago doing my run this evening, just run down there and run around a little bit. So I did Umstead in 2019. How did that go for you? Your first hundred miler. First hundred miler. And, um, I was actually coached by Sally McRae cause I had gone to a trail camp, uh, the year before that and met Sally McRae. And so, I got her to coach me for like three months because that's all I could afford. Um, and so she coached me through and and she was she was pretty confident. She thought I could do it in sub 24. But uh, but I ended up just the wheels completely came off at about 75, 80 miles in. And it was just a total death march at the end. And so I did it in 25 and a half hours, which honestly, I was totally happy with that for my first hundred. Oh, for sure. <clears throat> Doing it for 25 and a half hours, though. Do you look back at what Arlen Glick did at Umstead this year in like 12 hours and 54 minutes and go, how the, so how I can it get possible? I was there. So I've now become like staff at Umstead. Um, like the, 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 after that race, I reached out to the race director, Rhonda, and I said, look, I just, I want to be a part of this race. So just put me anywhere. You know, I'm a PA, put me somewhere medical if you want. And she ended up making me the very first year she made me aid station captain overnight at the aid station two, which is the one sort of remote side one. And I did that for two years. And then this last year, she just they called me up and said, hey, we want to upgrade you. We want to promote you to headquarters aid station for the whole day, you know, night, day and night. Yeah. Just put in charge of this thing. So every time Arlen would come through that aid station he was just flying and of course he's the nicest guy in the world so he's saying hi to everyone <laughs> you know because everyone was saying hey arlen you're killing it dude it's awesome and like you know some guys would just be focused but not arlen but every time he went by me and i was the, at the aid station he had a, a water bottle that he looked like he was finishing off or whatever just had a little bit left in it and he would chuck it in the trash can as he went right by me but he kept missing his eight laps so i had multiple times to check out his aim and he would miss and i would pick it up for him and finally in the last couple laps he started making it in the bucket so i'm listening to your podcast with him the other day yeah he's talking about how he was managing to keep his overall time like he didn't have any lost time except for like 21 seconds, 21 right? seconds yeah yeah so in the way and one of the ways was that he was having handoffs of everything. But the other way was that he was learned how to pee on the run. And so I'm on my run and I'm listening to you talking and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, please don't tell me that he learned how to pee in a drink bottle. Please, <laughs> please, oh, don't tell me he learned that because I was catching those things. <laughs> so he never quite said, but I've still got my fingers crossed that that was just water. But <laughs> if, he, if he wins the bass guitar and you get him back on, you have to tell him I need to know what was in that bottle. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. If the bass guitar happens and if people don't know, like this is this is this might very well air after Western States. So this could be a conversation. People are like, I already know if he's got the bass guitar. It's already built. Exactly. But just know, yes, I'm going to ask him. I'm going to say, you know, uh, John Goldfield was was running that aid station at the start finish and he kept having to pick up the water bottles you missed throwing in the garbage. What was in those water bottles, Arlen? Please, please say it's water. <laughs> well, how amazing, though. Seriously, yeah. 21 seconds of downtime. That yeah. is crazy when you think about it. Right. And he just looked fresh as a daisy and smiling and really just one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And his whole family just so happy. I mean, it was just like all the warm fuzzies with him. It was great. What I would love to see, I want to see a race between Arlen Glick and Harvey Lewis. And the yeah. race, I, it can be any format. I don't care. 
But the yeah. winner is going to be who's the nicest person in ultra running. <laughs> right. Because that would be like, that's the hardest decision to make. Like, who's the nicest man right. in ultra running? Hmm. Is it uh-huh. Harvey Lewis or Arlen Glick? Yeah, we'd have to put him through something really miserable and so we could try to break the spirit. Who <laughs> <laughs> <It> goes first? <laughs> Who's going to break and be a jerk first? Is it going to be right, Harvey Lewis? Or we get Gary Cantrell involved and we could probably help it. <laughs> right. No, but I even think like during, if, you, if, if somehow Arlen Glick got into Barkley, I still yeah. think he would be the nicest person at, at the end of each lap. Like, oh, Mr. Sure. Cantrell, I've got these pages right here. Which ones did you need? Oh, thank you so much. And everything. You know, like, he'd still be the nicest guy on planet yes. Earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so our fingers are crossed for Western states because, yeah. man, oh, man, wouldn't that be something to have that turnout for the first time since 1997, a runner from the Eastern United States wins. Yeah, that would be fantastic. It really would. A nicer guy. And you know what? Even if he doesn't win, I'm still going to find out what was in those bottles for you, John. That's been my (laughs) gift to you. (laughs) It's important to know. (laughs) Sally McRae is probably one of the nicest uh, woman runners. I said Camille Heron would be as well. She is the sweetest woman on planet Earth. Um, But but Sally McRae, she is known for, and she has given me shit for not not lifting weights um (laughs) what was the training like what did you learn from sally during those three months yeah so um so the backstory having having gone to the trail camp that she did for a few years with uh there's a group called tanawa adventures Mm -hmm. uh out in western north carolina yeah and that guy uh, brandon that puts on some races but he also puts on these trail camps and um in the camps and then in addition with the training you know she does a lot of that sort of you know focusing on your your overall you know body health um, mental health um being being kind to yourself um you know giving yourself some grace and and doing what you need to do to to basically enjoy running yeah Uh, and and also with me she really talked a lot about longevity like she she said okay you know you're I have younger runners and I have older runners. I'm like, I'm, I'm the older. That's a really <laughs> nice way of saying you're old, John. <laughs> I'll, I'll be 57 tomorrow. So yeah, back then I was still old. And she said, you know, I just want to make sure that you're, that you're going to enjoy this as long as you possibly want. So, you know, so she reined me in a lot and, and did pretty reasonable, uh, you know, training routines. And, um, and she did some body weight, you know, exercises too. But just a lot of like, just she's such a great cheerleader it's oh amazing. she is she's a wonderful I have a video leader. that she recorded for me before the umstead 100 in 2019 that i play still before any big race just because it fires me up it's awesome that's so awesome that is yeah. really cool what was it about so so you said longevity and she had to rein you in what did she teach you about like weekly mileage at your age that was, was was it was maybe something that you thought was counterintuitive to what you'd think you'd have to do to be ready for these races right well for instance for training for um the mayor the road marathons i did i did a hal higdon uh, program yeah um and they're fine but they're sort of standard they're very standardized they're you know they're one program for you know a hundred thousand people to right. try right um and and her thing with me was really all about the recovery um, you know, so I would do some hard efforts, um, but I wouldn't necessarily do super long efforts. And instead she would have me do some back to backs 
Um, but then she would really talk about like, what are you going to do in between? Like, what are you going to do the night, you know, the evening and afternoon after you had a whatever 14 mile run on Saturday? Because I want you to go out tomorrow and run another 14 mile run. So let's talk about that in between because I don't care how, how you run them. I don't care how slow you are. I don't care what surface you run them on, all that kind of stuff. Interesting. So, uh, that that really helped. Because, you know, Camille has talked recently about, and I, she's been misquoted a lot, but talking about long runs and how they're really not necessary. She breaks things up very similar to that where mm-hmm. maybe she'll run 10 in the morning and five or six in the afternoon or, or whatever, but she doesn't, she's not a big fan of long sustained runs of you know like she, she rarely does a 50k before or 100 miler so really you weren't the hal higdon thing is you will do 22 miles you know four right. weeks out from the marathon and so if you take the hal higdon approach to training for an ultra you're like well i better run 98 miles uh before, <laughs> right <laughs> beforehand but she uh, kind of showed you maybe breaking up instead of doing a 50k on the weekend you do 15 here, 15 Saturday, 15 Sunday. Right. Or if I was going to do something like a longer effort, like close to 50K, you know, I had a serious chunk of recovery afterwards, you know, some really mellow stuff, maybe some bike riding, you know, some walking the dog, you know, all these kinds of things to try to just make sure that I wasn't going to be injured. Yeah. Then that was great. I came into that race in good shape, not injured. And... You know, you're shooting for sub 24, but you know what? 25 is not bad. 25 hours is not bad for a first hundred. Right, right, right. Especially because I hadn't, I hadn't really had any tra- any mental training yet. Like, you know, there's there's a whole, there's this whole element that we all know about that you know that you, in order to push through when you're when when you really start to feel awful, uh, it, it's got to be mental. And and when I got to that point at 85 miles or so, and and I didn't feel like taking another step. That was just so much more to overcome for me. So interesting. So when did you start learning the lessons of mental toughness, John? Well, it's um, I mean, it's just developed over the course of the last few years and some of the you know, because I keep like I said, I keep picking harder and harder races to do. So I've, I, I as I've learned that um, that I can do things. I mean, that's, that's the real eye opening part for me. And and maybe the best part of a, of a long race is, is when I hit a point that I've already gone through the pity party, you know, where I thought, Oh, I'm never going to make it. I'm only 30 miles into a hundred and it hurts so much. And then I just keep going and keep going. Cause I've learned at that point, if I just listen to my body and just keep going and I can listen to my brain having its little fits, but I'm not going to stop. And then I hit a point where I'm like, feeling horrible but i suddenly just say but i think i can run anyways and i'll just run and it feels horrible but i'm running and and then i said it's that realization that wow i'm going to do this and for me i think that's even better than crossing the finish line it's that moment when i know i'm going to cross the finish line like in the most recent race i did i realized i was going to finish but i knew i still had to go all night long but i knew i was going to make it i just had to make it through the night Wow. Like you smell the barn quite a bit sooner than most people smell the barn. Yeah. And it's only because I know that. And also, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm far from an elite. Um, I, I used to call myself a middle of the packer. And lately, I think I'm a pretty solid back of the packer. But that's all right. I'm OK with that. Yeah. Because um, I finished a bunch of races recently where there were a lot of drops. And so, you know, it'll on, on paper, I'm coming in in the golden hour. 
but I'm just so proud that I didn't drop, that I didn't miss cutoffs because I I hustled enough even when I felt like crap. So um, it, it is pretty great to hit those points where where you know that you've gotten that, that it's definitely within sight and all you have to do is just keep moving forward at whatever pace. Do you remember a moment when that became a reality for you when you maybe thought like, I don't know, and just kind of decided, well, I mean, what's the worst that can happen and, and we're able to push through it then realize like, oh, I can just push through this? Right. Um, I did pin Hody, um, in 20, uh, 2020, actually mm-hmm. it was COVID year. Yeah. I was supposed to do Zion that year and, um, and Zion got canceled. So pin was still open in the fall. And so we went down and did that. And there was a point, um, you know, maybe, maybe 75 or 80 miles into the race where, uh, my crew told me that the sweeper was right behind us. Um, that he was at the previous aid station and that, you know, we had very little time to get to the next aid station. And it turned out that that was actually wrong because <laughs> the aid station's <laughs> distances somehow got messed up. Yeah. But I just I just hit this point where I decided I was going to run no matter what, no matter how it felt. And I was running hard enough that my pacer that was with me, this guy who had volunteered to run with me, you know, buddy that didn't realize he was going to do it, but there he was. He started to tell me that it was too fast for him, that it was that it was faster than his marathon pace. And I'm like, there's no way I'm running faster than you. Like every time I think I'm sprinting at the end of a finish and I see a video of it, I just laugh out loud because <laughs> it is not sprinting. <laughs> it looks like an old man trying to make it to the bathroom, you know. But, <laughs> but I was in that race. I was really moving. And it was, you know, Pinhoti's great that way because it's it's harder yeah. on the front end and it actually is pretty runnable on the back end. Oh, yeah. If you have legs the last 11 miles, yeah. you can really yeah. make up some time. So I started crushing it. It was great. And that's when I and then I realized, you know, once we once we hit the next aid station and realized that I didn't have, you know, like 15 minutes to spare, I had an hour and a half to spare. Then suddenly I was, it was like, wow, what did I just do? Like I can, you know, I can override these these internal governors that I have um, if I don't have actual injury, if it just hurts, then it's just pain and I can just decide not to worry about that and go for it. You know, and it's so funny. It's something you learn the more you do the difference between injury and just soreness. Like, yeah, I don't know what it is, John, about running that gets you so in touch with your body. Like you understand your body in a way you've never understood it before. Like all of a sudden, you know, like, oh, a little twitch in the back of my quad means this or like you have you almost recognize certain feelings because you've had them before and you've experienced pain here soreness here and you're almost you get this this sense where you you really can know the difference between soreness and upcoming injury yeah yeah it's like you it's like you have to have you know, it's it's not that you need to have a, a sort of Goggins approach of like, just push through the pain. It's <laughs> it's more like you have it's more like you have a a, a very calm, gentlemanly like figure sitting in an easy chair with a you know glass of brandy, saying, "Son, it's going to be okay. You're not dying. You can probably run. Go ahead, give it a try." And then you just go, "What the heck? I can do it." So what you're saying is, John, what we really <laughs> need in this new a space of social media influencers and this current trend of yelling alpha males 
Yeah. We need the counter to that is 1950s dad. That's what we need. We need 1950s dad going, you know, son, I've been through worse things in the war. You'll be just fine. Get up and start walking. And that's all. Right. That's what we need. Exactly. That's it. That's it. I mean, that's that's what I do at aid stations. You know, when I'm when I'm captaining these aid stations, I just talk to people and say, well, you know, tell me everything that's going wrong. And they tell me everything that's going wrong. And I say, OK, none of those seem to be reasons that you need to drop. Right. And they all say, well, no, but it really hurts. And you say, OK, well, start walking. And when you come around next time, we'll talk about it again. There are some people, John, that when they leave the aid stations you work at when you're captain, they curse you because they are hoping <laughs> like they are waiting. They're like, I'm going to go tell this very nice man with a big white beard, this very fatherly looking man who looks very nice. I'm going to tell him all these things that are hurting me. And he's right. going to say, you know what? It's OK. You can drop. I'm proud of you. And instead you go, that ah, sounds fine. Just keep going. I think you're going to be OK. <laughs> yeah, I had a there was there was a woman that was volunteering this year that uh that I had recognized from before and, and I told her, I said, Yeah, I remember your the, you know, my first year doing this with you. You came through an aid station and and I was trying to encourage you and you just looked me straight in the eye and you said, I'm sure you're a really, really nice person, but I'm gonna need you to shut the hell up. <laughs> 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 and I said, I remember that. And I remember laughing out loud when you said that. And I still just kept saying, okay, but here, have some salty snack and some Coke. And I think you'll be okay. <laughs> it was finished. <laughs> Wait, it's funny because you bring up another great point of you never judge someone's behavior at an aid station, right? Like, right. You, right. absolutely. You see people that are in horrible situations. And they're pulling themselves out of it. And you'll see them at the finish line and they're a completely different person. Yep. yep. I, I still feel bad. There was a race I did a couple years ago where it was, God, it was middle of the night. It's like mile 70-ish, 80-ish. You know, you kind of get to that rough spot right in that middle, kind of in those late miles when you're like, oh, God, it's 70 miles, 30 miles to go to us is ridiculous. And, and I remember getting to the aid station and getting really belligerent with the aid station worker who was telling me like the next, the next aid station is five miles away and that will be mile 76 or something. I'm like, no, I'm way farther than 76. How can I not be even at 76? And no, your math is wrong. No, the next aid station is 82 miles only to figure out. No, she was right. I was, I was wrong. Just in a really bad spot. Yeah. We had that uh, we we had that experience at the end of Tahoe Rim Trail. Yeah, where it just to go forever, and <laughs> you get to aid stations and you just say, "Please, please tell me how far to the next aid station, and please tell me that is a hundred percent true." And then a couple people would finally say, "Well, we were told it's seven miles, but it might be six or it might be eight. And I'm like, "All right, well, that's fair. Okay, right, right, right. I'm just going to call it eight, and I'll be really happy if it turns out to be six. I'll tell you what, though, honestly, the nicest thing now about new watch technology is, I mean, you can get a watch with 36 hours of full GPS tracking for mm -hmm. 300 bucks, where yeah. back in the day when I first got into ultras, I had a Sunto Ambit 3, which mm -hmm. had a grand total of 14 hours of full tracking and GPS it was a $400 watch. So yeah. you, you, you tried to, you tried to you tried to charge it on the go, right? So every, you'd always see people with 
the the armband that you're supposed to put your iPhone in, and they'd have a watch, mm-hmm. they have a battery pack in there, and they have a they have a wire running down their arms, charge trying to charge their watch, and it would never work, and your watch would go dead at. 70 miles and then you're just in mystery land like i have yeah. no idea where i'm at at this point where now you can just go like oh okay i pretty much know where i'm at yeah yeah i definitely had a had a couple of those in in the until i got one of these one of these fancy koros watches and <laughs> i saw sally mcgray you know yeah thank you sally because she's a big koros <laughs> supporter i, I yeah. it's, it's funny how the technology is even increasing even more i was watching um chase the summit Dave Dillon's wonderful YouTube channel. Um, and he was reviewing the new Sunto vertical, which has something like 60 some hours of full GPS tracking. Crazy. Right. I remember when it was six <laughs> <laughs> and you, you had to have multiple watches and you just trade off watches. You'd charge one and wear one. Right. Right. <laughs> oh, the good old days. Um, but you've yep. done some really, you talk about the Tahoe Rim Trail. Did you yeah. did you do was it the hundred or did you do the two hundred? The hundred. Okay. Yeah. The hundreds run primarily on the uh, eastern side. It comes up out of Carson City and then uh, loops sort of up and around uh, on that eastern side. Such a beautiful course. It really is, and I think sometimes the two hundred milers overshadow the hundreds, and maybe the hundreds don't get the attention that maybe they right. should because they're kind of overshadowed by the two by the two hundreds. Right. Yeah, it's um, and and it's a different, it's really a different course. Uh, you know, they start and end in different spots yeah. and all that kind of thing. But um, but yeah, that was that was a great race. Um, that was one that um, that was one of those you know kind of scared me because it was the most elevation that I was ever going to do. You know, had had done yet anyways because um, I had done a couple of hundreds before then. Um, but they were they were more about you know lots of ups and downs like no business and Pinhoti. Um, and then, so that one was the biggest, you know, the highest elevation so far, yeah. even though it's only about uh, maybe 9,000 feet at the highest. So I've heard, by the way, nothing but good things about no business. Was that your experience with it? Yeah. Um, that it was, it's hard as hell too. Uh, that was another golden hour finish. In fact, that one, I think I finished with 20 minutes to spare. I was third from last. Um, and I did pass one guy with like maybe 20 feet to go. So that would have been been second to last. And I think the last guy actually finished after the cutoff, but the race directors are so cool. They're like, no, 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 you get a buckle anyways, bro. You came in like five minutes after. So, um, yeah, that was a, that was a hard race. It, uh, it's really pretty, um, great course, super amazing support, um, great aid stations. They were cooking brisket at one spot, like 65 miles in, in the middle of the night, they're cooking brisket and handing out shots of whiskey and, um, super fun. But I, I just got trashed. I got super chafed because it was not raining, but it was very humid Mm -hmm. all day. And then at night it got even more humid. It was just like misty. Mm-hmm. And so I got, I never really had bad chafing issues before, but I just, my feet were racked with blisters and I had, I had every little seam on my body had blood coming through and, <laughs> and I had the wisdom to uh, change to a white shirt for the last like <laughs> 25 miles. So I didn't realize that I was bleeding through, but there's a video of me coming across the finish line with all this splotches of blood all up my sides. <laughs> No, and that's the pictures you can't show your friends at work because they're like, wait a minute, you paid money for this? How much did you pay? They all said, we knew it. We knew this was a bad idea. (laughs) You're going to die out there. (laughs) Yeah, but that race, I think I did the last 30 miles of that race literally just trying to maintain an 18 or 19 minute mile and my pacer would walk 
ahead of me. And I would have to shuffle run to catch up with him. And then as he would walk, he would lose me again. And I would shuffle run to catch up for 30 miles. Is this the same guy you dropped at Pinhoti? No, that's a different guy. <laughs> different guy. He was supposed to run. He was supposed to run Ben Hody, uh, and then he got COVID. And then he was supposed to run no business with me, and he had just a terrible training block, so he dropped and decided to crew and pace me instead. Thankfully, because if I if he hadn't paced me at the end, there's no way I would have made it. That's great. I love the I love the dropping, and I, I always I'm the kind of guy where I wouldn't want to drop pacer because I'd feel bad. But I know people that yeah. like love to drop pacers because it's like their yeah. motivation. Like it's like I don't ever want to pace you again because you just want to drop me. That's all you're using me for is the motivation to drop me, so I can be embarrassed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, well, when you're that far into a race too, if you if you feel like you've got the legs to to beat a buddy of yours, man, that's like that's a huge boost. Oh heck yeah. Yeah, you, you'll never let them live that down either. You probably <laughs> right. still bring that. I'd probably go like, "Hey, remember that time when I like right. I I dropped you at Pinhoti? Remember that?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you recently raced overseas, didn't you? Yes. So that was my first uh, international race. Um, I have a, a buddy that I met uh, at this trail camp um, mm-hmm. in North Carolina. Uh, he's from Norway. And uh, he would always send because we everybody from trail camp stayed good friends. And he would send pictures of all the races he runs. And of course, Europeans run these races, especially if they're mountain trail racers, just incredible. Every everything, every race is amazing. looking. Yeah. You know, every race looks like Killian is out there racing them. You know? Right, right. Um, so, but he would always, he had run uh, the Madeira Island 115K. Um, he had run it several times and he'd run some of the shorter versions of that race too in the years prior. And every time he sent the pictures, I was just jaw dropping, just so gorgeous. And I always said, well, you know, he's trying to get me to come join him for races. And I said, well, if there was any race I was going to do, it'd be Madeira. Yeah. So he was out here this past fall in September ahead of the Barkley Fall Classic that we were going to do together. Yeah. And he he's just sitting at his computer, just relaxing. And he just kind of offhandedly says, oh, look, there's 25 spots left at the Madeira Island 115K. And I said, well, out of how many? And he said, usually about a thousand. And I said, wow, that's not many left. And he said, you want to run it? And I was like, no, no, I can't. That's crazy. I yeah. can't all the way to Portugal and it's in April and I got to do Umstead in April and I got this and I got that. And it came up with like 10 different reasons, all of which I shot down myself. And the next thing I knew, I was booking a ticket. So we were going to Madeira. How was so, that experience racing overseas? So yeah, it was it was a trip. Like first of all, Madeira Island is just absolutely gorgeous. It's it's like one of the top three island destinations in Europe. Mm-hmm. And like us Americans, we have no idea where it is. Um, <laughs> you know, we know they they probably make Madeira wine. That's what everybody right, says. That's right. what I thought, right? Right. Uh, but it's actually it's it's off the coast of really south of Spain, almost like the Rock of Gibraltar in Turkey, mm-hmm. um, like four or five hundred miles out into the Atlantic this volcanic island that's really more like Hawaii than anything else. So it's it's like sheer cliffs straight out of the water. Um, you know, there are some beaches, but a lot of the beaches are sort of rocks and rugged and just beautiful and these waterfalls and, and lush greenery and all of the farming's done on with terraces and they have these irrigation canals all over the island sort of networking. Um, they're called lavadas that are basically trails yeah. uh, with a sort of ditch along the side. And, um, and then a lot of the trails are just literally cut into the side of these cliffs um, and sometimes through the cliffs, uh, you know, with railings, but um, but really kind of sketchy looking, you know, sort of like every part of the trail looks like Angel's Landing at Zion. You <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> um, but it's um, 
it's pretty rugged. It's it ended up being it's about twenty three thousand feet of gain over one hundred fifteen k. Wow, seventy two ish miles. Yeah, so more more elevation gain than I had ever done in any hundred mile race um, in a shorter distance. <laughs> Wow. And it's a 32-hour cutoff, but uh, if you wanted it to be a Western States qualifier, you had to do it in 29 hours. So that was my goal. I was like, oh, I'll do this a Western States qualifier. I'll get to go to Madeira. I'll go for a week ahead of time, and we'll, like, live it up and, you know, get an Airbnb and and check out the island. And and my buddy was going to – he knew the area, so he was going to show us all around and everything. And, and it was great. It was fantastic. But it kicked my butt. Did you make it in time to get qualified? I did not make it in 29 hours. I made it in about – 31 hours just shy of 31 hours but but frankly i was super glad i did that (laughs) like i i I came to the understanding a little before halfway that there was no way i was going to make 29 hours because i had done uh i had done this whole like you know charted out all the aid stations and mileage and all this stuff and and really thought i had it dialed but it was just it was I had done tons of research. I had watched all the videos. I had translated, you know, race reports from Portuguese and French and everything to figure out what the heck was going on. And uh, there was one video that literally takes you every step of the way that, you know, runner, some runner is taking it all the way. Nothing compared to actually getting there and realizing that some of these, the climbs were, the climbs were hard. Yeah. But you sort of expect that you expect you're just going to be like slogging uphill these endless switchbacks and these stairs after stairs after stairs and they're all like rocks and boulders and none of them are real stairs of any kind right but it's the descents the descents crushed me they were so steep and so and a lot of them were switchbacks where you're literally like above the guys below you um but some of them were just straight the hell down and your toes are just jammed into your shoes and you're using your poles to keep from slipping onto your butt and um it was like right in the middle of the race was one of the steepest most technical descents and by the time i got to the bottom of that i was i was only a half hour ahead of the cutoff and not sure if i was even going to make it out of the aid station in time so i got out of the the midpoint aid station with 10 minutes to spare and thought wow it'll be lucky if i can make it up to the next huge climb it was like a four thousand foot climb over the next five miles um and i just said well i'm just gonna go for it because the next part i knew was the most beautiful and i was lucky i got to the top of this huge mountain right at sunset and it's above the clouds so there's this inversion layer over the whole ocean and just the peaks of everything are sticking out and like all of us runners from all over the world are just you know thankfully everybody kind of shares english as a common language so the little united states guy can talk to everybody um, but I got to make friends from Poland and Germany and, you know, all these other places and UK. And we would sit there and just look at everything and say, well, we may not make the next cutoff, but dang, is this beautiful. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty fun. Was there any moments for you going like, oh, God, I'm a guy from Raleigh. I may be a little out of my league here running Big in Portugal. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the beginning of the race. You know, it, it's it's that hype. I assume that it's sort of a probably just a mini version of UTMB, really that kind of hype. Yeah. Uh, but to me, it felt like I had I had once a long time ago. I did a Spartan race, and I, I, but as a like as an official trail runner, you know, I was in a Spartan race, and I felt like that guy completely out of out of my element, and just sort of laughing at all these people around me getting all hyped up. So then here we were at this European race where it's just loud music and bright lights and there's TV cameras and people are getting interviewed and and it's just like, wow, so much energy and the streets are lined with people. And the race starts at, at Friday at midnight. Yeah. So it's a midnight start and 
And like for the next five hours, the the streets and little towns that we go through would be just completely lined with people with cowbells and the Vuvuzela horns and cheering you on. And you're like, dude, it's two in the morning. We're, what's going on? Yeah. This is great. So cool. So different than what we're used to. And again, it's not a, a slide or a slight on American yeah. ultras, but how many times, John, have you ran a race or crewed something and you're going through town, you got to stop and get gas or ice or something, and nobody has the faintest idea what's going on on the trail right. a mile yeah. from their, their business, where at this race, there are people like just lined up in the middle of the night yeah. just to cheer runners on. Party. Big party. Wow. So that was that was pretty cool. And uh, and just being around, you know, all these different uh, different folks from all the different lands. There were only 10 Americans there. And and I think four of them were elites. So <laughs> just a few of us out there. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, it was it was crazy. Yeah, and I saw like I joked about the, you know what what are the things that you you know see that were different about you know these races. Obviously, there's lots of lycra, and everybody had poles out like from the beginning, like, right? On pavement, click 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 click, all this loud pole thing going on. But also, this is the first time I've seen somebody like pull off to the side to smoke a cigarette. You know, the race. <laughs> <laughs> and his buddies all stopped with him. You know, they're like, oh, we got to wait for him. He's from Croatia. I'm like, OK, all right. <laughs> smoke a cigarette. Smoking a cigarette halfway through a race? Yes. <laughs> and then the other thing is the aid stations are they're fantastic. But like they have plates and, and these runners sit down with, with plates full of food. And, and I'm here like, you know, I'm totally trained to like, keep, keep moving, keep moving, right. stuff things into your vest and move out. And and yet, like some of the same people that would come in with me and sit down with their plate and then I would do all my crazy American, you know, get through the aid station and, and get out. And then like five minutes down the trail, they're like, how are you doing? We're right back with me. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> how would you compare the vibe at Madeira versus just your standard American Ultra during the race between the runners? So it was really interesting because, and and maybe this is partly because of the language barrier, but um, but but it really there wasn't a lot of communication for a long time. Yeah, um, like I didn't make any friends basically until uh, like a little like two thirds of the way through, and as, as we were entering into the second night, suddenly this guy that I'd been leapfrogging with, you know, a whole bunch, and we had said pleasantries to each other. He says he's running next to me, and he says, "I'm bored." And I said, what do you mean you're bored? And he says, no, I mean, I'm tired. And I said, oh, well, let's talk. And then all of a sudden, it was like two ultra runners on the trail. We, you know, we're brothers now. We we talked nonstop. We talked about everything. We talked about, he schooled me on like United States pharmaceutical industries. <laughs> and we talked about philosophy and families and hallucinations that we've had and, you know, what our favorite lube is and what our favorite, you know, what we're eating for nutrition and, you know, whatever, everything. We talked about everything. It was crazy. That is so cool. That guy and a, and a guy from the UK and then. And then there were a bunch of, like the French people all seem to know each other. I don't know what that was about, but <laughs> I think if you were French, you were automatically like friends with everybody. Right, right. <laughs> that is so good. Would you recommend like everybody go run a race in Europe? Yeah, definitely. It's there. There's so many of those races in Europe are, are really they have some amazing, amazing trails. Um, and, and a lot of them are really, you know, quite well put on, you know, they're, they're big professional organizations and, 
you know, the race directors wear blazers at the end of the race and they look all official. Um, it's really kind of funny, but, um, but it's a, it's a good setup and it's, um, and it's such a trip to be in that sort of, um, cultural milieu, if you will. Um, and yet there's this undercurrent that like, Oh, this is the same, but different. It's, it's, we're all the same. We're doing the same thing. We have the same mindset, but it, it just feels that slightly different than it would if I like running Penhody and no business and Umstead, that's the same vibe in all of those. Right. Like, you know, they may, they may look different a little on the outside and this and that, but, but basically it's the same vibe. You might just see the same people even. Um, but this was definitely different. And it was fun. I mean, it kept it kept me just grinning the whole time. Like even when I was miserable in the middle. <laughs> do they do buckles at that race? No, they don't do buckles. They do a um, they do a, a medal and a little magnet or something like that. So, but because it's 115k, there are a couple of European races now that are doing buckles. But but most European races don't do uh, don't do that. They'll just give you a medal. That is the one thing Americans have given to the Europeans is the, right. the belt buckle is pretty darn cool. Right. And of course, the Europeans sort of like roll their eyes and laugh. They're like, well, belt buckle. Oh, you all want your belt buckle. <laughs> like, how many belts do you have? <laughs> like, right. I have one belt, right. but I use lots of different buckles on it. I can switch them out. They're snaps. It's real easy to, to switch them out. I can do it in like two minutes. <laughs> so all this cool stuff that you've already done, like, what do you want to do? What does the rest of 2023 and 2024 look like for John Goldfield? Well, um, you know, when I came back and having not made the cutoff of 29 hours, I said to myself, well, you know, Western States, who who really needs Western States? Do I really need to kill myself to get into Western States? I'm fine. I'll just do some more, you know, culturally special running experience, yeah. whatever. I, I got on my little like intellectual horse about that. And then about, you know, four days later, I'm on ultra sign up and on the, on the Western States website. Okay. Which races qualify and which ones are still open and what can I get into? So, uh, I'm, I'm going to run canal corridor, uh, 100 this year. Mm -hmm. Cause I actually, I read about their, the, the, the folks that put on that race and they just seem like the coolest people and they do great stuff. And they're just like, you know, one of those true ultra runners for ultra runners kind of deal. Um, and it's <laughs> what's, what's actually really a departure is that it's completely flat. Yes. It's like 800 feet of gain over a hundred miles. So I'm actually a little worried about that. Like how I'm going to, how I'm going to approach that. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm the king of, Oh, let's stop. It's a little bit of a hill. Let's walk. You know, I'm good with that. You know, it's funny, a buddy of mine, Martin, he he does a lot of mountain races too, and he went out and did Prairie Spirit a couple of months ago, and he was talking about, for the first time ever, he's like, I'm going to employ a run-walk ratio, just because yeah. it is so flat, and I, I'm i not getting those walk breaks for power hiking, so I'm yeah. going to, he, he, I'm trying to think of what did he do, was it 45 minutes of running and then 15 minutes of walking every hour? Or something that, along those I'll lines. I'll definitely have to do something like that. Um, and, you know, maybe I can coordinate it with, you know, normally I eat like every 35 to 40 minutes or something like that. And I can just make it so that I run for a while and then and then start walking and pull out a, you know, pull out a gel or a waffle or whatever I'm eating. Yeah. Um, or maybe, you know, maybe time it around the aid stations or whatever, you know, run to an aid station and walk for 15 minutes after the aid station. I don't know. I'll have to. I'll have to figure it out, but it'll be interesting. But now that I'm, you know, now that I've done lots of races where I'm finishing like just under the cutoff, I might actually 
go for sub 24 on this one. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be great, wouldn't it? You're like, look at me. Look at me. I look made me. it. <laughs> I can finally do a sub 24. <laughs> now, John, I did a little snooping on you um, yeah. on, on social media before this interview. Now, I know you are a proud father of two yes. very incredible young women. Um, one of your daughters recently graduated from college. So congratulations on that. She actually was high school. She's oh, going high school. to college. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Graduated yeah. high school. Yeah. Now she's going to college. That's that's a trip, by the way, uh, going yeah. to your child's graduation, whether it's high school or college. Um, did they do the thing where they asked you not to applaud until everyone's name had been called? No, thankfully we got to holler and yell, and and the only bummer was that I was uh, I was forbidden from bringing my cowbell. <laughs> dad, don't embarrass me! Don't embarrass me, Dad, with your cowbell. But I also found out, by the way, that you are a harmonica player. Yes, I have a band uh, here in Raleigh that uh, we've been we've been playing since kind of the middle of COVID when it started to loosen up just enough that people felt like they could get together and um, and yeah we've been playing out a little bit more now so I uh, I'm the lead singer and harmonica player in the band and occasionally I shake a shaker too. Oh, so you're the maracas guy too? It's like give John I'm the maracas. maracas. <laughs> what type of what kind of music do you guys play? So we uh, we do covers of uh, blues and classic rock and southern rock and stuff like that, kind of a, a mix. Very cool. You have to be like the coolest. Stuff, yeah. Your your daughters have to be like, listen, you got to meet my dad because my dad's in a rock <laughs> band and my dad runs ultra marathons. Like I don't even like you're the coolest dad in their friend group. <laughs> yeah, their friends don't believe any of it. They're like, really? No, you mean he runs like a uh, 10K, right? <laughs> right. It's like, no, he runs 100 miles. Um, do you do you have your harmonicas nearby? I do. I, I pulled out the harmonicas. Okay. Do you remember the guy from Blues Traveler in the 90s, John Popper, who wore the yeah. fishing vest with the harmonicas right. all in it? Do you, have you ever wanted to do that? No, I've got a... So I, I actually made it. I made myself my own little harmonica case so that I could see them all. Because uh, I, for for a long time, I thought about having a bandolier, but but Ooh. then I sweat too much. So <laughs> <laughs> you, you use one of your old um, Ultimate Directions vests. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Stick a bunch of harmonicas in the different pockets right. of your Ultimate Directions vest or your exactly. Solomon S Lab. And have some beer in the, in the bladder in the back <laughs> right, or something. Right, exactly. I mean, the perfect. Set up for a rock musician all right you can pick your favorite harmonica i think you got to play us out with a little little harmonica music john it's only right and fair (laughs) all right we will uh we will bring us on out then okay all right let's see here this is the first yes ever first ever on the podcast to be finished out with harmonica John, John Goldfield. <laughs> That's the way to finish a podcast, my friend. All right. Thanks, Ryan. <laughs>